Today's reading is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. Jesus and Beelzebub. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Jesus' mother and brothers. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jenny. Um, If you can have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 3, I'm sure that would help you as we go through this text. Um, One of the things I hope you noticed about Shatin Church is we do make an effort to, once again, not preach from somewhere else, but really go through the scripture. Um, and appoint people to the truth of the scripture. And, uh, but this is not something that we should just be doing uh, from the front. This is something that you should be checking um, as well to actually go through the scripture with, uh, with me and see if this is what God is saying. But as we come to this text, why don't we pray that God will speak to us. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks that You've given your word. Um, You've revealed yourself um, to us uh, in the scriptures. And we pray that as we come to it, um, that only the the Christ of the Bible will be revealed to us, um, that that he might confront us and our lives might be changed. Um, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we start, I'm going to start with a short quiz. Um, could you guess who said these things? So this is one of the things that this guy has said. My IQ is one of the highest, and you all know it. Please don't feel stupid or insecure. It's not your fault. Here's another one. The beauty of me is that I am very rich. Here's another one. Um, Number one, I have great respect for women. I was the one that really broke the glass ceiling on behalf of women more than anybody in the construction industry. Any guess? 
Yes, it is Donald Trump who said these things. Um, Whatever your politics are, um, I think it's safe to say that you either hate or love Donald Trump. He's not a guy who inspires sort of mild liking or, or mild disliking because he says insane things. I mean, the guy, he, I, have a high, I, have, I have one of the highest IQs that you know, and you, do, you shouldn't feel stupid because I am really that intelligent. Or the guy who says, I broke the glass ceiling for women in the construction. It's a, he says outrageous things. Um, but, and don't take this the wrong way, but actually, some, this is something that Jesus and Donald Trump have in common. <laughs> of course, is nothing like Donald Trump in character. But if you actually go back to the Bible, he says outrageous things. He says things that are divisive. He says things that, uh, uh, that inspire love or hatred, but nothing really in between. Think about all the things, all the ways that people react to Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus' family say here in verse 21? They say he is out of his mind. They went to go and seize him. That word for seize is to arrest. They think he's crazy. They want to get him and lock him up. This is what his family thought. His brothers and his mother was there too. Mary was there as well. And the next group uh, goes even further. The teachers of the law said he's possessed by Beelzebub. They think that he's positively evil, intent on destroying God's good world. There's a group that confesses Jesus to be God in this chapter as well. So if you have your Bibles open, take a look at verse 11. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. The demons recognize Jesus even as they opposed him. Now, why did people react to Jesus in this such strong, very passionate ways? And it's because in some ways, like Donald Trump, Jesus said and did outrageous things. He made outrageous claims. Somebody in my links group this past uh, Monday said, if you came and told me, to, uh, told me, follow me, she said, I would never do that. <laughs> and I said, well, that is the right answer. <laughs> you shouldn't ever follow me in this way. But that's the point, actually. I don't think of myself as important enough to go to someone and say, come and follow me. But you see, Jesus did. Jesus went to people, strangers, and said, you should come and follow me. You should leave everything, actually, and come and follow me. He thinks that he's somebody very important. And these are some of the other outrageous claims. Remember in chapter 2, in verse 10, where Jesus says he forgives somebody's sins. Son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody everybody whispers, uh, saying, who can forgive sin but God alone? Once again, Jesus is saying, I am God. Uh, we heard last week how he said that he's the bridegroom who has come. Um, and this bridegroom is somebody that the whole of Israel has been, wait, had been waiting for. God said he is going to come and, and marry his, uh, uh, his, uh, his people. And he says, I am the groom. And he says that now you sh- no one should fast because this is a time of such joy that no one should fast because of me. He calls himself the Lord of Sabbath, verse 28. 
And he also calls 12 disciples right before, in the episode before this. He calls 12 disciples, doesn't he? Do you know why he calls 12 people? He calls 12 people and he designates them as apostles. What he's saying is he's God calling the new people of Israel. He's calling a new nation. He's, he's making a new people with these 12 people, like 12 tribes of Israel. You know, if I said, I am a good person, if I went around saying, I am a good person, you might say, well, you're okay, or you're not so okay, or whatever it is. You, you wouldn't call me crazy. You wouldn't call me possessed. But Jesus, this is what, what this means. Jesus didn't go around saying that he was a good man. Jesus didn't go around saying that he was a good teacher. He made outrageous claims about himself. He said much more. And of course, this is the famous um, mad, bad, or God uh, trilemma that C.S. Lewis uh, had put out. And I think he really was thinking of this passage or this section of Gospel of Mark. He put it much better, so I'll read it. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. Well, that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said this, this sort of thing, Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would, he would be the devil of hell. You must make the choice. Either this man was trilemma and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. He did not intend to leave that option for us. These are the choices before us. But I think as we say these things, uh, some of the people say, well, actually, maybe it's not that Jesus, um, uh, it's maybe that Jesus was actually a great teacher, but over time, uh, legends have developed about Jesus. And this is what Jesus' followers are saying, but this is not what Jesus said. These are maybe legendary stuff that's been recorded in the Gospel of Mark. Um, this is, I think, maybe the Da Vinci Code uh, kind of thinking, right? This is the, uh, the, the, um, uh, what that book uh, talks about. And so as an aside, let me address this as quickly as I can. This cannot be true. This cannot be some legend that was made up far after Jesus' life because there is, one, not enough time for Jesus' um, legend to have developed. There's maybe about 20 years, 15 to 20 years, uh, between Jesus' death and, the, and, and, the, and uh, Mark, Gospel of Mark. And it's just not enough time. And if you think about that also, there are many, many people who have seen Jesus at that time who would have said, actually, this is not what Jesus said, right? If Mark wrote this uh, to the people who know, knew Jesus, they would say, actually, this is not what Jesus taught. This is written within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. This is not a legend that would develop over many, many years. And not only that, it's clear that people from very early on, very early on, started to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And here uh, in our text, we get James, brother of Jesus. Brother of Jesus who actually called Jesus crazy. This guy becomes a leader of the church. 
And we know that because he wrote uh, one of the letters uh, to, in the Bible of James. Uh, he calls there Jesus the Lord, right? His brother calls him Lord and Savior. How could it be? This isn't a legend that came out many, many years after, people, many generations after. It's the same generation of people, people who knew Jesus very well, saying that Jesus is their Lord, that Jesus is their Savior. And also, if this is a part of the uh, legend, then it's just too unflattering, um, not so much for Jesus, but for all the early leaders of the church who might have made up these unflattering, uh, uh, made up legends about Jesus, right? Uh, James, once again, calls Jesus crazy. Now, if there's a legend that's made up, would, would he make uh, uh, legends that are so negative about him? You know, uh, there are a lot of legends about Kim, Jong, um, Kim Il-sung, the founder of North Korea, and all of them are positive. All of them put uh, them, uh, him in a positive light. But this is not the case when you read the, the Bible. The early leaders of the church are all fools. Um, Peter is a denier of Jesus. Everybody runs away. Only women stay after. Right? This is not the kind of legend that, it, uh, that people would make up. If they were making up a legend, they might have done it much better than what this uh, uh, offers us. Uh, there are many, many other reasons why I, this I just don't think is convincing that this is a legend. Um, so if you are uh, wondering about that, please uh, do come and talk to me afterwards. Uh, there is a book, a very good book called A Case for Christ, and you can just buy one of these books and read it uh, because it makes a very good case uh, for why this cannot be a legend. Uh, people reacted to Jesus in these three very strong ways. He's crazy, he's evil, or he's God. Rightly so, because Jesus actually did and say these outrageous things. But here in our text, he does go on to refute one of, uh, 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 one of the charge that he's possessed by the devil. So let's go there. And the, his defense at first is perfectly logical. He gives a logical defense. He says, it doesn't make any sense that I would be possessed it doesn't make any sense that demons would be driving out other demons by the name of demons. That just doesn't make sense. And actually, that would be self-destructive, he says in verse 25. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. That logic stands. It can't be that Jesus is possessed driving out other demons. Much more likely, is in verse 27, that Jesus is fighting against the demons, the strong man, he calls him, verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. See, Jesus is saying, he is the one who has come to bind the strong man. He's come to undo evil, undo devil's work. And this is why the devil, whenever they see him, they fall down and they say, what are you trying to do with us? You are the son of God. They recognize that Jesus is even stronger, that he's come to drive out demons. And he says, the charge you're making is very serious. Verse 28, truly I tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander that they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Whenever he says, truly I tell you, it's literally amen I tell you, he says, he's saying what I'm about to say is very important. You should listen. 
if you do this, um, this is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and it cannot be forgiven. And so I think our ears perk up here as well, and your minds might be racing and go, have I committed this sin? What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What is this unforgivable sin? And in order to understand what this actually means, the context is absolutely important. Um, It determines really what it means. The context tells us that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit isn't saying mere words um, against Jesus, as if words have some magical power of eternal condemnation. It's not rejecting Jesus for a time either, and it's not actually about even sort of blasphemy. We know that because of the context. There are those who are forgiven for these very things that I've just mentioned. For example, Jesus' brother, brothers here call him crazy. Now, this cannot be an unforgivable sin because James, brother of Jesus, who was most likely there, became a leader in the church. He was forgiven of whatever happened in the past. Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. He says, I swear I don't know him. And yet he's forgiven. And he's designated as the chief apostle. He's forgiven. The apostle Paul says he's actually blasphemed. He wrote, I thank Christ, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief, 1 Timothy 1, 12 and 13. Clearly, he's forgiven, even though he admits that he once blasphemed. So it's not saying some magical words against the Spirit denying Jesus for a time, or saying even something blasphemous. The unforgivable sin is something actually much worse, much more serious uh, than this. The context tells us that this sin is, the un- what's unforgivable is the continual rejection of Jesus' ministry of forgiveness at the face of clear evidence So it's continuing to reject Christ and his ministry of forgiveness at the face of overwhelming evidence. You know, they had the evidence that Jesus was the Son of God, didn't they? I mean, we all think this, don't we? We think that if we were there 2,000 years ago with Jesus, we would believe him because they saw what Jesus was doing, and they saw what Jesus was doing. And yet, they continued to reject Jesus' ministry. They had the logical argument. Jesus had said, look, I can't be the devil. That won't work. Not only that, Christ had shown once again, profundity of teaching. Whatever he, wherever he, whenever he taught, people are amazed as teaching, at his teaching. People thought there was something different about him because he taught with authority. They saw something profound about his teaching. He also lived a life that was utterly consistent. I mean, if you look at my life in detail, you'll go, ah, there's something wrong with that guy. But if you, if you examine Jesus and his life in detail, you'll be utterly amazed how consistent his life was, his teaching and his life was. Not only that, he had the, they had the healing healing of the paralytic man, the, lep- uh, the, the leprous man. Um, uh, uh, they, they, and wherever he went, the demons bowed down and, uh, and said, you are the Son of God. They submitted to his authority. 
and yet they would call him possessed. And yet they say he has an evil spirit. I find this remarkable, especially once again in the light of verse 11, where the demons, even though they oppose him, recognize Jesus. But these people are so stubborn, so obstinate. Their hearts are so hardened that at the face of overwhelming evidence, they continue to call Jesus possessed. That's blasphemous. Rejecting Jesus is rejecting the ministry of the Spirit, which in turn is rejecting of, uh, of rejection of his forgiveness. So if you uh, have your Bibles open, once again, if you can turn um, to uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Let's take a look at what the ministry of the Spirit was all about. The... Uh, John says his ministry is about forgiveness of sins. And he points to Christ. And in verse 1, 8, chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He fuses his ministry and the ministry of the Holy Spirit as one, but the ministry of the Holy Spirit will be something that will be even greater. So Jesus will come and be filled with the Spirit, and he will baptize you with the Spirit. What this means is he will offer you forgiveness of sin in a way, in an unprecedented way. So rejecting the Spirit of Jesus, calling it an evil spirit, is rejecting his forgiveness. It's rejecting the ministry of forgiveness. It's not so much that this sin is unforgivable, It's that this sin makes forgiveness impossible because it's a rejection of the very forgiveness that's offered to them. So in a way, I'm not worried about Christians who are here and have welcomed Christ into uh, their hearts. You don't have to be anxious about whether you have committed this sin or not. If you're worried at all about this, it means that you haven't committed this sin. It means that Christ lives in you. I'm not even worried about those people who are outside of the church, who don't have access um, to the gospel. But I do worry about some of you who might be here today, who refuse Christ at the clear evidence of his kingship. You've heard the gospel. You come to church. You see the love of God. You see changed life. You might have seen the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit in the people around you. And yet you keep on rejecting Christ. And if you continue to reject Christ, there's no forgiveness. That is an unforgivable sin. But thankfully, this text doesn't end um, here. Remember, this section is sandwiched uh, by, the the section about the blasphemy is sandwiched by the story of Jesus' family. This is uh, how Mark often writes uh, it's called Mark and Sandwich. Uh, it starts with the story of Jesus' fam- family. It goes to the discussion about blasphemy. And then it go- comes back to the story of Jesus' family again. And what this means is that these two stories need to be read as one story. They should interpret each other. So in the beginning, they set out to go and seize Jesus. At the end of this, uh, uh, this story, they have arrived. And they're outside and waiting um, and uh, they, they send somebody in to say uh, that your, your mother and your brothers are here looking for you, verse 32. 
And as this is happening, I think this is what's really, really shocking about what Jesus says. He answers, Who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. mother." Those who were seated around him and listening to him, responding to him in the right way, doing his will. He says, you are my brother. You are my sister. You are my mother. You are in my kingdom. How about Jesus' blood family? Well, they're outside. They're outside of this inner circle which implies they are not part of God's family, not yet. And this is how the story A is related to the story of B. Jesus' family is in the same position as those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. They're both outside of Jesus' family. You see, our real worry shouldn't be so much about whether we've done this blasphemous thing, unforgivable sin, or not. There's one question that matters, which is, how do you respond to Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus? Have we recognized him as Lord and are doing his will, or have we rejected him? In some ways, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and rejecting Christ is, is the same thing. If we respond in this way, we will be left outside of Christ's family. But the flip side is amazing. Jesus called those who were seated around him brothers, mothers, and sisters. That included the 12 disciples, and if it's uh, the usual crowd, that included all sorts of people, sinners, lepers, people who were healed, people who were outsiders, Levi, um, uh, uh, tax collectors, uh, maybe some penitent sinners. Before the warning of the blasphemy, there was this great promise in verse 28. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins, and even blasphemy, that, that's the slander is the same word, even every slander that they utter, no matter what kind of person you are, no matter what you've done in your life, it can be forgivable if you come to Christ. You can be included in God's family. Grace is offered to everyone who comes to Jesus Christ. So is he your Lord? Have you come to him? You know, a few weeks back, I, met, I was meeting with a couple of people um, who I thought wanted to know more about Jesus. Um, one of them said that actually he wasn't too bothered about the, whether this is true or not, whether he really study, studies uh, this or not. Because he said at the end of the day, actually, um, that if you believe this sort of stuff, and um, then you will live a good life, a life that's sort of worth living. And he thought, okay, that's fine, so it doesn't really matter if it's true or not. And I just thought, well, this guy doesn't, I've never really read the Bible. <laughs> He's never read the Gospel of Mark because it's not about living a good life. Living a good life is not what's offered here. Jesus comes and he offers himself. We become Christians because Jesus came and divided the world. He went around saying that he is the Son of God. 
the bridegroom, the Lord of Sabbath, that he can forgive sins. He said that eternal punishment or eternal reward is decided on how, he, how we respond to him. This isn't about living a better life. This is about seeing the real Jesus and committing our lives to him, giving our lives to him. And Jesus wasn't crazy. He's the most sane man there was. He's not possessed. He's the best a man man could be. He is the Son of God. And we must bow down and worship him. And the amazing thing is, as we bow down to worship him, he brings us up and he says, you are my brother, you're my sister, you are my mother. What an amazing privilege that is. Let's pray. Lord, we give you great praise for your son, Jesus, that you sent him. You sent him to die upon the cross so that we might be included in his family. And Lord, we pray for those of us here, those of us, uh, those around us who don't yet know you. We pray that they will examine this faith. They'll examine who you are, that they might meet you and your son, that their lives might be changed. And we pray for those of us who have committed our lives to following Jesus, that we would follow this real Jesus that is revealed in the scripture. Help us to follow him daily. In Jesus' name, amen.